Welcome to the Federal Society's Practice Group Podcast. The following podcast, hosted by the Federal Society's Criminal Law and Procedure Practice Group, was recorded on Friday, July 7, 2017, during a live telephone conference call held exclusively for Federalist Society members. Welcome to the Federalist Society's Teleform Conference Call. This afternoon, we'll hear about compensation for the wrongfully imprisoned. My name is Laura Flint. I'm the Deputy Director of Practice Groups here at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Today, we are happy to have with us Professor Ilya Soman, Professor of Law at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University, and David Laban, President and CEO of the Association of Prosecuting Attorneys. I will turn it over to Professor Soman to get us started. After opening remarks, we'll go to audience question and answer. Thank you for speaking with us, Ilya. The floor is yours. Uh, I'd like to start by thanking the Federalist Society for organizing this event and Mr. Laban for what I know will be his insightful comments. Uh, And I'll start off next with this particular thought, that right now we're in a period where pretty obviously there's a lot of ideological and partisan hostility. Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives are at each other's throats about a whole range of issues. Uh, I think that's unfortunate, but the issue that we're talking about today actually isn't a particularly partisan issue, or at least it shouldn't be. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, whether you're on the left or on the right, it just makes good sense, and it's a matter of simple, fundamental justice that if a person is imprisoned or otherwise punished for a crime that they didn't actually commit, if we find out that that happened, we should compensate that person and we should do all that is reasonably possible to make them whole for the wrong that they have suffered, whether that wrong was inflicted deliberately because of official misconduct or whether it was uh, an honest mistake. Sadly, however, in most states today, uh, either there is no compensation for people in this situation or uh, the compensation that exists is extremely small uh, or often very difficult to uh, qualify for and get. So I'll start out by briefly talking about the scope of this problem. Uh, Then I'll talk about the remedies that exist in current law. And then finally, I'll talk about some possible improvements, how we can make compensation in this area better, more efficient, uh, and more effective at fully uh, redressing these terrible wrongs when they happen. So first things first, the scope of the problem. The University of Michigan National Registry of Exonerations says that in 2016, 166 people were exonerated for uh, previous convictions, by which they mean, and I mean, that these people were shown to be very likely innocent. It wasn't simply that uh, they were freed because of some procedural uh, technicality or the like. This is up from 149 the year before, uh, and it's up significantly over the last 10 or 12 years. Uh, It is likely that the issue here is not that the problem is getting worse, but simply that we're measuring it better because there's more attention to it, more DNA testing and other kinds of evidence. Nonetheless, most experts believe that this figure of 166 greatly underestimates the true number of people who are in prison for crimes that they didn't commit. Obviously, in many cases, it's simply very difficult to check up on the evidence in a 
crime for which somebody was convicted, especially years after the fact. Moreover, most criminal defendants, most people who are convicted, have very few or no economic resources. So uh, there are not going to be many people going to take the time to look over convictions years after the fact to see if maybe the uh, defendant was actually innocent. There are some advocacy organizations in this area, and some of them do good work. However, many of them concentrate on capital cases, uh, and very little effort by comparison is taken to analyze cases where somebody got, say, a long prison sentence, but not the death penalty. So ironically, whatever you think of the death penalty, if you're an innocent man wrongly convicted or an innocent woman, uh, you're more likely to be eventually exonerated probably if you were sentenced to death than if you were sentenced merely, quote unquote, to, say, a 20 or a 30 year prison sentence, because it's much more likely that experts and advocacy organizations will start to pay attention to your case. It's worth noting that of the exonerations over the last couple of years, some 40% or more of them come from special conviction integrity units, which have been set up in 29 jurisdictions around the country. Uh, obviously, those jurisdictions cover only a very small percentage of the nation's population, so it's indicative that if you have people who are especially dedicated to turning up these cases, more of them turn up, but in most jurisdictions, uh, there's no such specially dedicated group, and this further reinforces the idea that uh, the problem is of larger scope than the data that we currently have. Uh, what is the harm that is suffered by people who uh, are wrongly convicted and in prison? Well, obviously, they lose income for the entire period when they're in prison. Moreover, living in prison is itself very painful and unpleasant. I think most of us can readily imagine why that might be the case. Uh, I think this is true even if you're in a prison which is not violent or there's not a risk of prison rape. Obviously, in some prisons, that is a serious threat and that makes the situation worse. Uh, another important harm is that even after you get out of prison, uh, for understandable reasons, it's often very difficult to just uh, return to a normal life. Often you can't get back the job that you had. Moreover, there's some stigma attached to having been an ex-convict uh, and so forth. Uh, I would add also that of the people who have been exonerated, uh, on average they served during the last year or two, on average they'd served uh, some 14 years or more in prison. So we're not talking about some very brief stay in prison after which people uh, take up their normal lives again. Do even a very brief stay could still have significant impact. In many cases, we're talking about people whose lives have been very severely disrupted. Uh, in about 40% of the exonerations in 2015 and 2016 that we have on record, uh, the wrongful conviction was the result of official misconduct by police or prosecutors or other government officials. Uh, this was true also in 75% of homicide cases uh, within this group. Homicide cases are about a third of the total. Uh, but in fairness, in many cases, the conviction was the result of honest mistakes. Uh, in my view, even if there was an honest mistake rather than deliberate misconduct, uh, the person is still owed compensation as a matter of justice uh, and fairness. Uh, what is the current law on compensation for these people? Some 32 states do have compensation statutes that offer at least some kind of compensation to these people. 
18 do not offer any compensation at all, and it's worth noting that those 18 uh, are sort of an ideologically eclectic group. Some of them are red states, like Arkansas and Georgia. Some are purple states, like Pennsylvania. Others are actually very blue states, like Rhode Island, Delaware, and Oregon. So it doesn't seem like there's some clear partisan uh, pattern here. Uh, of those states that do have compensation statutes, most have pretty significant flaws. The most common one is that many of them offer only a very small amount of money. So, for example, uh, New Hampshire caps the compensation at $20,000 total, no matter how many years you've been in prison. Uh, I think there are very few people on this call or anywhere who would spend even one year in prison in exchange for $20,000, even if they thought that they could be completely safe during that uh, year. Uh, and many other states also offer only perhaps a few thousand dollars per year and the like. There are a few that are more generous. Interestingly, the most generous is Texas, which is often seen as a state that's tough on criminal defendants, but they actually offer some $80,000 per year plus an annuity plus some other assistance, and I think that's actually a pretty reasonable system, and if all or most states were like this, it would be uh, better. Uh, another problem with the status quo is that in many states it is procedurally very difficult to get the money even after you have been exonerated. For example, in some states uh, you have to uh, get a special private bill through the state legislature saying, well, if Soman has been wrongly convicted, here's a special bill giving compensation specifically to Soman. Uh, you can see how this would be difficult for those who don't have much in the way of political connections, and obviously most criminal defendants, in fact, Act, uh, do not. Uh, and other states throw other procedural obstacles uh, in the way of people. Uh, what can we do to improve this? Uh, well, one thing I think that's very important is to increase the amount of compensation such that the compensation is at least somewhat close to the true level of harm suffered by uh, the people who are wrongly incarcerated. Federal law uh, at this point offers up to $50,000 per year of incarcer incarceration for federal prisoners and somewhat more if you had been on death row. The Innocence Project, the leading advocacy organization in this field, recommends this sort of system. I actually think it may be desirable to have compensation at a higher level than that, perhaps at the level offered by Texas, because I think even among relatively poor people, I'm skeptical that there are many who would accept incarceration for $50,000 per year, uh, especially if the conditions were bad or dangerous or otherwise problematic. Uh, but at the very least, the federal-like system would be a great improvement over the status quo uh, in most states. Uh, I think it's hard to be completely precise about exactly how much compensation should be offered, uh, and reasonable people could differ over it. I think it's very hard to deny that the status quo is uh, far too low, at least in uh, many, many states. Obviously, we could also fix some of the procedural problems I mentioned before. We could make the compensation automatic, as I believe, if I remember correctly, is the case in Texas. If you are exonerated in the sense that it's shown that you were actually did not commit the crime, then you should automatically get compensation for your years of imprisonment and other harms that you may have uh, suffered. I think another important reform is to improve our ability to identify these wrongful convictions in the first place. I mentioned before that jurisdictions that have uh, uh, these, these CIUs, uh, the 
conviction in, uh, the, the conviction integrity units, uh, that they have a much higher rate of these exonerations in other jurisdictions, uh, even though they uh, exist only in areas that serve about 17% of the U.S. population. And some of these CIUs are not even very active, so it's really the 15 or so that are active uh, that produce a lot of the exonerations. Uh, I'm not saying we should absolutely, definitely, exactly copy the CIU system throughout the country, but there should be a better institutionalized mechanism for dealing with these problems. A lot of research by a lot of scholars or organizations and others has shown that there are significant problems in the criminal justice system with things like handling evidence uh, and also f false convictions of various kinds and, in some cases, very serious official misconduct that often goes unpunished. Uh, in some cases, also officials have perverse incentives, such as that they're judged or promoted uh, based on their conviction rates or based on the number of cases they clear. Uh, and in some cases, that creates incentives to look the other way if somebody's being railroaded or even perhaps to help railroad them. So we could uh, have some reforms there as well. Uh, I think also that compensation in this area uh, would be in line with our policies in other areas, even in a case where there is no official misconduct, where somebody is just a victim of honest mistakes. Still, if this is just a cost of, a, of the criminal justice system, and in some cases it may be unavoidably so, then at the very least it should not be borne solely or primarily by the innocent person who has suffered. Rather, they should be compensated for their losses just as they are uh, in the, uh, for instance, under the takings clause. If your property is taken by the government to build a road or a highway or a military base or the like, even if the government has acted entirely legitimately, entirely legally, still uh, the takings clause says you must get just compensation for your property because this is the sort of thing that the Supreme Court says uh, this is a burden that should be borne by the public as a whole and not merely by you know a particular individual who has been unlucky. And I think the same thing applies here. Uh, it is probably inevitable that even in the best criminal justice system, some people are wrongfully punished. But when it does happen, the so that should not be inflicted solely on them. Rather, it should be paid for by the public, which is the hopefully the ultimate beneficiary of the system as a whole. Uh, so uh, obviously much more can be said, and I should note I'm not saying that the takings clause constitutionally requires such compensation, but I do think that the same principle that justifies the rule under the takings clause also justifies compensating people who, through no fault of their own, have been wrongfully convicted. And on that note, I conclude, but I very much look forward to discussion. Thank you. David, would you like to make your remarks? Yes. Um, good afternoon. Quite an enlightening uh, opening by the uh, professor, as I thought I was back in court and trying to make sure that we were on the right topic because I believe that this situation is, is a compensation for the, those wrongfully imprisoned. And uh, much of the statement was talking about situations where uh, there, there are definitely flaws within our system. Our system is that of a, of a human system. The system does make mistakes, um, but um, much of the numbers, in, in fact, the numbers from uh, Michigan uh, relate to it, it, the, those cases and, and the cases that relate to the conviction integrity units, uh, which the professor didn't mention, is those conviction integrity units that are working on the cases 
are in prosecutors' offices, and that's where I'll open. There's not a single prosecutor out there in the United States that wants to convict an innocent person. Um, and when the system fails, especially a, a system like we have that is a human system that involves, you know, prosecutors, uh, officers that that, that re respond to the scene, investigators that handle the case, um, defense counsel, and uh, the capacities and the training of, of, of their staffs, um, the judges, and then ultimately, in the majority of the cases, the jurors that sit and listen and and discuss what the guilt or innocence of the individual is. Um, we have a system that is in, in the finest in, in the world. We have a system that's the most accurate. It's the most accurate possible um, of any uh, system. Um, the most recent numbers is, is the number of felony sentences in, in 2012 is the most uh, uh, current on record, uh, 1.2 million uh, felonies. Um, and and to think that even one of those felonies was with an improper uh, conviction and that someone was improperly imprisoned, of course, is something that the, the government should address is, of course, something that should be there statutorily. And there should be some certainty to, to that individual that if they had nothing to do with the offense and they got caught up and, and arrested and convicted, of course, they should receive compensation. That is, that's that's beyond the question. Um, but the fact that that it is so incredibly rare uh, points out to the fact that that this is extraordinary, not ordinary, uh, as we look at the system itself. To hear things like clearance rates and that there is some sort of a benefit to clear, uh, and, and by clearance rates that the professor mentioned, that means that an officer is clearing a case, you know, a case cleared by arrest. So that officer is wrongfully arresting somebody in order to uh, get that case off of uh, his or her docket. Um, to put some reality uh, in, into this discussion, um, the overall uh, clearance rates, and again, 2012 by FBI is the most recent out up there. Um, you're you're looking at um, pardon me one second. Oh, I believe it's 48 percent was the most recent. Excuse me on that. Yes, it is 48 percent of those accused of violent uh, crimes were, were cleared in the United States. And for those accused of nonviolent crimes, you're about 19% of the clearance rate. So to think that, that officers are, are out there uh, clearing a, a tremendous number of crimes, what that really means is on, on a violent offense, you, you are more likely than not to ever be arrested for the commission of that offense. Uh, for a nonviolent for a property crime, it's about one in five. So um, we only arrest the really obviously guilty um, and then when you go from there and look at what the conviction rates are, it, it falls even farther. I was looking at some uh, recent statistics, and, and this would be on top of the clearance rates. Um, city of Philadelphia, their attempt murder and assaults, um, their, their conviction rate, that was the cases going to court, uh, went from 34% to 42%. Their homicide rate went from 79% to 90%. So um, the, it is very difficult to get a conviction, and the likelihood 
um, of somebody being wrongfully convicted, as I said, of the 1.2 million felonies a year is, is uh, minor uh, at, 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 at most. Uh, the discussion was 161 cases. The reason why I tried to get us back on track, those 161 cases include all uh, cases of exoneration. Many of those uh, situations were drug cases. It was out of Harris County, it was the prosecutor there who found that the, there were a number of drug cases where the initial screen was positive. Ultimately, when the uh, screen came back and was completed with the test, it was negative. So they came back and uh, dismissed those particular cases. So that has nothing to do with this topic of an innocent person being caught up in, into the system. And that the fact that an innocent person would get caught up in the system is one that deserves compensation, compensation should have compensation. And uh, again, uh, discussions beyond that framework, I don't believe are appropriate. Uh, as, it, as to the discussion of where do we go and what are the fixes, whether it's 32, I actually believe it's 37 states in the District of Columbia have statutory schemes that put into place that if somebody is wrongfully convicted and imprisoned, that there is a pathway to receive compensation. Um, on behalf of prosecutors, those situations should be very narrow. It should not be a situation uh, where somebody did commit the offense, um, was convicted by the first jury, and then the uh, second jury went not guilty. It shouldn't be a situation where there was incompetence of counsel um, at an initial trial and then uh, brought it back into a situation where um, the person had served 10 or 12 years and the prosecutor felt that, look, he served enough time for this case. We're not going to retry him. Uh, the victim of the child sexual assault is, is now 35 and doesn't want to come back to court again you know, uh, allow that individual to then be released. Those are not situations that should be compensated, and that's what happens when you cross and try to put uh, different lists on there. There are also uh, situations such as we were uh, involved with just uh, last month uh, down in Georgia. You have an individual that was caught by their recidivist drug laws. He was offered a plea to two or three years in, in prison on his current offense. He chose not to do that. He was convicted and that carried a life uh, term or cap. Um, upon being notified about the case and working with the Southern Poverty Law Center, we looked at the case. Uh, we actually reviewed the prison records and we went to the local district attorney and asked that he sign off upon a release. Those are the kind of things that really happen. It, it has, and that individual should not be compensated. He clearly committed the offense, but the, the sentence of which he was serving was, in our opinion, disproportionate. And that is something we've also worked toward is can we get to the situation we, where we have more proportionate sentencing laws, including the reductions of things like mandatory minimums. But back on this topic, absolutely. There should be a state scheme. And the other reason why there should be a state scheme in place and some um, statutory requirements to it is that those that have gone to the legislature have generally received much more money than the professor would, would uh, lead you to believe that when it's an individualized bill, especially in the situation of someone who was wrongfully convicted, uh, many times those individuals have received millions and millions of dollars. And in that situation, the legislative response, which is appropriate, is to uh, figure out how you could make it orderly, 
how it could be proportioned to the income in the state or in some other fashion. But I will again join the professor's comment that there is really no amount of money that is going to replace the time lost by somebody if, in fact, they were truly wrongfully convicted and wrongfully imprisoned. In other words, this discussion I thought was going to be on innocent people. And if somebody is innocent, that they should be compensated. For someone who's innocent, had nothing to do with the crime, and for them uh, to be imprisoned, that is, that is truly it's a horror, and that's a horror to, to the prosecutor who handled that case. It's a horror to the defense lawyer, to the judge, and, and think of the jurors, that they were involved um, in putting away an innocent person. Why do I say it's so very, very difficult to convict? It's because that's the system that we work in every day. Our convictions must be beyond a reasonable doubt. Our system is based on it's better to have 100 guilty walk free than to have a single innocent person ever be convicted. And that's a system we believe in, we follow, and we do every single day. So when the system breaks down, absolutely, uh, there should be compensation. And that's why a, a legislative scheme and statute is the best uh, circumstance and the best way to do that. But thank you very much for the time. Um, Professor Shapiro, would you like to um, respond to anything? Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'd like to do a brief response. I'd, I'd first like to uh, thank him for, the, for an excellent statement. I think we agree on one important point, but perhaps disagree on some others. Where we agree, I think, is that uh, we, I think we agree that there should be compensation in cases where an innocent person is sent to prison and is later exonerated. Uh, I think that's an important area of agreement, and hopefully we can build on that. We do, I think, disagree somewhat on the scope of the problem. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, the figure of 166 very likely greatly underestimates the true scope of the problem uh, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, including the fact that only a small proportion of cases are likely to be investigated after the fact. Many defendants don't have resources uh, and so forth. Second, I think there is more trouble uh, with the incentives of prosecutors, police, and other officials than the previous speaker suggested. Uh, he said, well, there is no officials who would want to convict an innocent person and send him to prison. I think that is indeed true of the vast majority. Uh, but sadly, it is very wrong to say that nobody wants to do such things. As I mentioned earlier, uh, among those who have been exonerated, uh, the evidence shows that over 40% involved some sort of official misconduct. Moreover, there are notorious examples of large-scale official misconduct that have been investigated in a number of states over the years. One famous example is the child sexual abuse craze of the 80s and 90s in Massachusetts and elsewhere, where uh, evidence showed that a number of people were railroaded and spent many years in prison as a result of official misconduct by prosecutors and others. Other cases, including also in Massachusetts and elsewhere, have found severe misconduct by forensic examiners and the like that have uh, affected many cases. And there are a lot of other examples like this. Uh, police and prosecutors are not a particularly bad group of people. Many of them are fine, upstanding public servants. But like any other large group, uh, they do have bad apples in them. And they also, uh, in some cases, like other government officials, face some perverse incentives. I mentioned some of them already that 
often they're judged and promoted based on clearance rates and conviction rates and the like. Uh, and it's true, uh, the clearance rates in many jurisdictions are still not necessarily high. So it's not the case that they, you know, they track down somebody for every crime that is committed or even close to it. Nonetheless, uh, at the margin, that is entirely consistent with some innocent people being railroaded through misconduct or in some cases through just carelessness or mistakes that uh, it's not often so much that the officials you know, deliberately say, well, this person is innocent, but I don't care. I'm going to convict him anyway. It's that if they find it at first, it seems like you know, he or she is the guilty party. Uh, they might then push forward, even if uh, you know, later evidence emerges otherwise and the like, uh, like the rest of us, uh, police, prosecutors and other officials uh, sometimes have a bias in favor of interpreting events and evidence in a way that serves uh, their interests. So the point here is not that they're somehow uniquely bad people. It's that they, like the rest of us, respond to incentives and they, like the rest of us, are prone to mistakes. I don't know, frankly, whether our criminal justice system is the, the most accurate in the world. Uh, I haven't seen good comparative data on this. Frankly, I would be surprised if it were true that we were the most accurate. I suspect that a number of other Western democracies may be more accurate than we are. But even if we are the most accurate, uh, we shouldn't rest on our laurels. We still do have uh, some significant uh, problems. Finally, with regards to going to the state legislature here, I think we have an area of agreement. It would be better for the state legislature to create an adequate system of compensation that was systematic as opposed to based on individual bills. It is indeed true that sometimes if an individual can get a private bill through the state legislature, they might get a very large amount of compensation, but obviously many people are not in a position to do that. This sort of system favors those who get more publicity or have more political influence uh, or the like. So I went on this thought. We don't really know, at least at this point, what exactly the full scope of this problem is. It is very likely substantially larger uh, than the uh, the cases that have so far been uncovered. Uh, the fact that the incidence of those cases that have been uncovered has gone up significantly over the last decade from just a modest increase in efforts to get at them is an indication that uh, there's probably more out there. Uh, I do agree very likely this is only a small percentage of all convictions, uh, but because we have so many people convicted, particularly with a large and massive war on drugs, a very small percentage of the total can still be a tragic and far too large absolute number. Thank you. David, would you like to respond before we open for questions? Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll just touch the, the last couple because, I, I, again, I think uh, things like the discussion on the war on drugs is, is relevant for criminal justice reform and is something uh, that I have uh, been spending a good amount of time here in Washington, especially the last few years, uh, trying to work on as well as uh, a number of the prosecutors' offices, just large offices throughout the country working with their legislatures. Um, that has nothing to do with this discussion. The only reason I brought up the drug cases is the professor keeps going back to the 161 cases. What he's not sharing with you is how many of those 161 cases ever saw uh, a, a, especially a prison bed um, because when, when he quoted that number, that's what shocked me because that's completely irrelevant to this discussion. So once you take out the drug cases, now your, your number is even smaller. I, I can't do the math. To, to go from 1.2 million felony uh, 
sentences. This is ones where, where actually folks were sentenced, so they were not diverted or all, any sort of an alternative, and drop it to probably less than 100 cases, probably in the 50s, um, if, if even that number uh, involved innocent folks. I just submit on the fact that that's an incredibly accurate system. Then when we, we go in the direction of what should we do, of course, a, a systemic response is the appropriate one. Um, I continue to say the legislature is, is the right direction. Um, the quick research I did in preparation for this, I believe in 2012 there were 24 states, and as I said, the professor used the number of 32. I uh, thought by, by the quick research it was 37, but why do I bring up those numbers is that is a if it's 24 to 32 using his numbers, that means a third more states. So that's a statistically relevant and, and gets you past the tipping point of 25 states um, have addressed it. I believe there continue to be uh, other bills in the legislatures uh, to do that. But again, those bills require, and that seems to be maybe a disagreement, those bills require that these folks are actually innocent. And that should be the basis of any sort of compensation not a situation of an individual being not guilty, not a situation that they didn't have um, adequate uh, counsel that, or that their counsel that they even chose. Um, as was discussed, uh, there was an earlier uh, talk about death penalty. The best defense in a death penalty case is an incompetent lawyer. So if you're facing the death penalty, go hire yourself an incompetent lawyer uh, because you'll be able to tie that thing in court for years and years and most likely uh, go, go back to the beginning and, and uh, be retried again. So yes, if you're guilty of that murder, go, go get into an incompetent lawyer because that's the way to get around it. Uh, but as far as there being an epidemic of, of wrongful convictions and innocent people in prison, I don't believe that that's true. have not seen any number that would, would validate uh, anything near that would point out that the units the professor's talking about are in prosecutor's offices. We do care about this. We care about it a lot. And the only person that has ever, uh, that, and, and I've worked with thousands of prosecutors, I've been in this business for 30 years, um, at the local, state, and now the federal level, the only people that talk about in conversation that prosecutors get promoted by conviction rates are those in the outside or those that are trying to sue us. There's not a single prosecutor out there that's excited about someone who has a 100% conviction rate. If they have a 100% conviction rate, they're not trying tough cases, and they're not a good prosecutor. So all prosecutors lose cases. That's, that is part of our system. As I pointed out, it's better to have guilty people walk free than to wrongfully convict an innocent. Thank you. Let's go to audience questions. In a moment, you'll hear a prompt indicating that the floor mode has been turned on. After that, to request the floor, enter star, then the pound key. When we get to your request, you will hear a prompt, and then you may ask your question. We'll answer questions in the order in which they are received. Again, to ask a question, please enter star, then the pound key on your telephone keypad. Not seeing any questions right now, I'll make a brief announcement. Our next Teleform conference call is scheduled for Tuesday, July 11th at 12 noon. That call will be an update on the persuader rule with Christopher C. Murray, who's a shareholder at Ogletree, Deacons, Nash, Smoke, and Stewart, and our moderator, Karen Harned, who is the Executive Director at the National Federation of Independent Business, Small Business Legal Center. Reminder to keep an eye out for emails announcing upcoming telephone calls and to consult the full schedule of our upcoming calls on the Federalist Society's website, fedsoc.org. Also available there are podcasts of previously recorded telephone calls you may have missed.
Um, I'll make another call for questions. To ask a question, please enter star, then the pound key. Not seeing any, I can ask one of my own. Um, is there a common theme among states that do not have the compensation statutes? I know you said that they're liberal and um, Republican states, but I was wondering if yeah. there was any reason you thought. It's a good question. Uh, I think this is a subject that would repay some study, at least just looking at the list of states put up by the Innocence Project and others who create these lists. There, there isn't an obvious common theme. Uh, you, you have states that are very ideologically different from each other, so it could be just a matter of vagaries of whether somebody in the state legislature became interested in this question or not, or it could be other uh, contingent factors, but this is a question that you know it would be interesting to crunch some numbers on to see if there are other background characteristics of states, such as you know whether they're rural, they're more rural or more urban, or other uh, things of this sort that uh, on the surface may not seem significant, but if you control for a lot of variables, maybe they would be. Let's go to our first question yeah. from the audience. Oh, would you like to add something? I was going to say the the other piece is uh, that I would add into the professor's statistical analysis. One is it looked like some of them are the small states, so you're just talking about pure numbers. You know, are there enough cases to support anything like that? And going right behind that, um, have has the state had a wrongful conviction? Um, because likely the the situation of, of moving legislative bills forward and especially with my work at the state legislature level um, it it will only happen after you have a, a few cases or one case that is of significance that that draws folks attention so I would add that into that factor but yeah there does, there's no it doesn't look like there's any ideology red state blue state as to, as to the list that, that have no statute I would note there are several large states in that list population-wise, like Pennsylvania and Georgia, for example. Let's go to our first audience question. Uh, yes, thank you. I have two questions, please, for the professor. Um, sir, did I understand you to say that you believe there's a constitutional right to compensation in these cases? And if so, what's the source of the right, if not the takings clause? And then secondly, um, are you concerned, is there any empirical evidence to suggest that prosecutors may be less willing to confess error in these cases if there's a financial implication to doing so? Thank you. Yeah, so thank you for the question. On the first question, it is not my claim that there is a constitutional right. Rather, I was just making a moral analogy between this situation and the principle behind the takings clause, which is that if you have something that's just an unfortunate cost of a public system that benefits the rest of us, that cost should not be borne by individual innocent people, but rather should be spread throughout society as we do with the takings clause when, for example, uh, your property is taken for a uh, public use or the like. Uh, and similarly, we should do the same thing here. Even if there was no official misconduct involved, even if this was just a matter of uh, you know, a, a system functioning properly but still creating an honest mistake, still the victim of it uh, should be compensated. Uh, on the, uh, I'm sorry, I lost, what was the second question again? 
uh, whether or not you had any concern or whether any empirical evidence oh. suggested that there might be some unwillingness of prosecutors to confess error if there's a financial component to doing so. So I haven't seen evidence of this. Uh, keep in mind that the money that would be paid out in compensation, uh, at least under the currently existing systems, would not be paid out of the prosecutor's own pocket. It would be paid out of the public fisc. Uh, and therefore they wouldn't suffer a financial loss. They might well suffer reputational damage if their error is exposed, but that would be true, I think, even if there was no financial compensation involved. Uh, so uh, I think there's not much reason to believe that prosecutors would be more reluctant to admit error if the uh, victim of the error had to be compensated. I would add that even if this were true, I would still be very reluctant to say that, well, we just shouldn't compensate the people so that the prosecutors would be a little bit more likely to admit their error at the margin. Thanks very much. Thank you. If, 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 if I may on that, because that is a current topic, especially as it relates to the conviction integrity units. Um, there definitely is, because right behind the Innocence Project or involving the Innocence Project are a number of plaintiff's attorneys that are making handsome amounts of money. The million-dollar settlements you're talking about are, are the, the plaintiff's bar. And what that has done is has impeded situations where there's no error. So let's be clear that this is not an innocent person. But at the same time, especially through the conviction review process, because some offices call it conviction integrity, others just call it conviction review, as a second look at a 20-year-old case, there are situations, and that's why I brought up the Georgia situation, where somebody was rightfully convicted, has served a, what we think today is a very long term, and there are, are prosecutor's offices that would be willing to say, and the individual I'm thinking of is, is no longer in office, uh, so I feel a little bit of liberty on it, but but you know he mentioned there would be a number of cases he'd be more than happy to sign off on. Say the ser the person served eight years or ten years, you know, and for the office's perspective, that is enough time. But because of the litigation um, situation, and because the moment he signs his name, the state's going to be sued, that does cause people to pause, and it's really hard for prosecutors because we're out there trying to pursue justice. What is a just and righteous sentence? And if you could get rid of the financial incentive and this cadre of, of attorneys are out there that are suing uh, units of government, I think we could get to a much better situation and more justice. Not, again, this doesn't relate to innocent people, but it relates to folks who are guilty, but, but by now have served enough time especially for those states that don't have a parole board or some other safety valve that you could get an individual released other than the prosecutor either dismissing or withdrawing the indictment or, or some other procedural mechanism. And I very briefly comment on that. Uh, first of all, it's, as, as far as I can tell, Georgia is actually not one of those states that even has a compensation statute for the uh, for the uh, those who are uh, wrongfully uh, convicted and imprisoned. Secondly, uh, if it is in fact the case that situation, I mean, it, it may have been easy to work in Georgia based upon the caller's uh, question. It may have been easy for us to do our work in Georgia and get uh, this individual out. His last name was Mann, Mr. Mann, um, because there wasn't a situation where the moment that we work okay. and get him released, they're then suing the state. Yeah. That's so what I would I say is that if officials know somebody is innocent, 
uh, and want to get them out, uh, but then hesitate to do so because uh, you know they worry that there might be some loss that is a result for compensation. That in itself actually is a pretty damning indictment on the system in, not, in that particular that's, that's, jurisdiction. No. But let's be really clear. That's not what I said at all. I said for the innocents, there's no question. If somebody is innocent, they should be compensated. We totally agreed on that. But what your caller said is, do you end up in that situation where somebody's not innocent, but you look at the case and say, they have served enough time? And you might be right about Georgia, because Georgia doesn't have one of these statutory schemes. It was easy to go in that, go to that prosecutor, go to that, that court, and get someone who had served enough time out. But there is absolutely a situation that because of the lawsuits that are being brought, especially right behind the Innocence Project's work, that it's a chilling effect on the cases that are not innocent. It's a chilling effect on those cases where, where a reasonable person, we're in a human system, can say this individual has served enough time. If they committed the crime today, they'd serve three years. Why, now that they've served 12, wouldn't we agree to the release? That's the chilling effect, and that's the cases that, that I think the, uh, the caller was, was directly on point about. I had a, a somewhat different interpretation of the caller's question, but I suppose we should move on. <laughs> um, again, to ask a question, please enter star, then the pound key on your telephone keypad. Um, not seeing any question from the audience. I can ask another. Um, Professor Soman, um, did you mention whether you believe that if a conviction is vacated because of incompetent counsel, do you think that the individual deserves compensation? I know that David said he didn't agree with that. So I don't think that that should necessarily be the case anytime a conviction is vacated because of incompetent counsel. Obviously, in some cases, uh, if a conviction is vacated in that situation, then there might be a retrial, right, with hopefully more competent counsel. Uh, at the same time, uh, in some of these situations, it might be warranted to have an additional proceeding to determine whether the person was actually innocent as opposed to merely incompetently represented. So uh, it is not my view that any time a conviction is vacated for that reason or indeed for any procedural reason uh, that there should be compensation, but neither should it be ruled out in such cases. Uh, I think in some instances, an additional proceeding would be warranted. Uh, in other instances, obviously, when a conviction is vacated for a procedural reason, uh, what would happen is that there would be a retrial and we would need to go through that second trial to see if the person is convicted under uh, following proper procedures or not. I'll make a final call for audience questions. Again, to ask a question, please enter star, then the pound key on your telephone keypad. Not seeing any audience questions, would either of you like to make some closing remarks? I'd just like to briefly comment on this issue of the 166 uh, people in the Michigan study. First of all, uh, looking at the data just now, 93 of the 166 are not drug convictions at all. Uh, they are actually people convicted of violent crimes, including 54 homicides. There are 73 convicted of nonviolent crimes, uh, in many cases uh, drug offenses, but still uh, drug offenses are just one part of this. And obviously, if a person was exonerated for a drug offense, uh, that still is an improper conviction. I would add also that on average, the 166 people uh, in the Michigan study have served over a decade or more in prison. So in most cases, uh, this is not just some sort of trivial contact that they had uh, with the system. 
the last point I would emphasize on this is that for all the reasons I already mentioned, this figure of 166 is almost certainly just the tip of a much larger iceberg. Uh, we would need much more effort, whether through conviction integrity units or some other process, to determine uh, the full scope of this. Uh, and I think that uh, while the full scope is very likely only a small percentage of all convictions, it is a number probably much larger than 166. David, would you like to make some closing remarks? I uh, think it's been an enlightening uh, conversation. Uh, I wish it had been more focused on folks that are actually innocent and imprisoned, um, because that was the only quibble on, on the one, and I see it as 168, not 166, but we could, we, you know, again, we're, we're just nibbling at the margins. Um, some of those folks spent time in prison. Some of those folks were innocent. Others of them spent no time in prison. Others of them um, had things like we've talked about, which is things like incompetence of counsel. Case gets reversed for incompetence of counsel. As the professor says, there's a right to a retrial, you know, or many times, you know, the state can move to, to retry them. But again, on the practical measure, having been someone who has handled child sexual assault cases and, and homicide cases, there are some times when even though the individual is guilty of the offense, we cannot retry the case because the case has now become so old. Witnesses have died, cannot be relocated. Uh, there are some times that those cases get retried and they're found not guilty. Certainly does not mean that the wrong person was accused. It means that one jury went guilty and the other jury went not guilty. I think the one agreement with the professor was, was the concept of, was that there really needs to be some later procedure to determine the factual innocence of the individual that nothing should be automatic about something like this and that it should be put to whether it's a judge, whether it's a jury, whether it's uh, uh, some sort of administrative procedure, but allow others to see what it was and, and have a basis to determine was there truly innocence. And then if there was innocence, what's the rightful uh, compensation? But I appreciate the opportunity uh, to talk about this and uh, look forward to uh, other projects. On behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank our experts for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at Thank you all for joining us. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this practice group podcast. For materials related to this podcast and other Federalist Society multimedia, please visit the Federalist Society's website at fedsoc.org slash multimedia.